my clap was very bitchy, but it's there. It's, it's so it was so quiet and so silent. <laughs> I still see Put it some, registered on my thing though, so that's good. Put some 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 sass in his clap. Oh man! If only I had some sass in my clap. Oh bro! Like <laughs> that was seriously like the weakest thing that I've ever seen in my entire <laughs> life. It was like almost like just a straight dash on the on the audio timeline. It was ridiculous. The weakest damn <laughs> clap I've ever seen. Mm. Hey bro, I'm metrosexual as fuck. I can give you some sass and a clap, G. Uh, dude, I used to be. I don't know what the hell happened. I guess. I got to, uh, no, actually, I got the opposite of masculine, right? I can't even clap. I don't know. I don't know how any of that works. I had a friend one time dressed up as a mix between a metrosexual and a lawn gnome for Halloween, and he was a (laughs) metro gnome. Oh, my God. (laughs) That's hilarious. That's great. That's wonderful. Madison says I'm not metrosexual anymore because I have a beard now. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I guess that does kind of throw the vibe off. Huh? <laughs> uh, Kayla showed me a meme the other day. Uh, it was something about um, we had to have a term for uh, men who like bathed themselves in the early 2000s and we deemed it metrosexual or something like that. <laughs> I don't remember the exact context of the Honestly, meme, but it was pretty funny. Accurate. It made me laugh. You are listening to Hunting Pixels, the Culture Bop video game podcast. I am your host, the one and only Bebop man himself, Josh McMullen. And I am joined by my venerable co-hosts, one uh, Claptrap. I believe that's your your icon there, Mr. Mr. Claptrap himself, Dylan Martin. It's How you boy. doing, man? I'm doing good, man. How you doing? Uh, you don't sound very much like Claptrap right now, so I'm... I'm working on it. I'm a little uh, peeved. <laughs> I can I can do the whole, you know, cynical sense of humor, but not so much the voice. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think I think we've all got that going down. We'll see. Right? Uh, yeah, right. Uh, and we are joined by our other co-host... Uh, you know, I haven't really thought of another nickname for you yet, so we're going to stick with the very, uh, not correct title of Cat Dad, Mr. Austin Stevens. Hello, good morning. Uh, listen, man, you got to get some cats if you, uh, I know, Brian. if you want to become a real Cat Dad, you got to do it. Hey, you can just call me Big Papa if you want. That's what everybody else does. So. Oh yeah, isn't yeah, that like your Instagram yeah, handle or something it's like my that? My Instagram name because like the the group of friends that I used to that we meet Madison and I used to hang out with. They all like I, in everyone's phone. I was Big Papa, so that's just what I started rolling with. The thing is, you're not a Big Papa though. You're that's the joke. Quite yeah. small. That's the joke. <laughs> that's the point. Um, well, I guess no point other than the fact that it doesn't match 
just like Cat Dad doesn't match. <sighs> what are we going to do with you? Living on the edge, bro. <laughs> it doesn't have to make sense if it's catchy. True. Very true. Okay. Well, if you were listening to this, you were probably one of like 10 people. Um, <laughs> and they're all friends with us. But uh, maybe not. Maybe you're listening to this in five years from when we recorded and we are a gigantic podcast. Either way, this is, as I stated before, Hunting Pixels. This is the video game podcast of Culture Bop and the Culture Bop family of entertainment. And really, this is... How do how do I really want to put this? Um, so this is just an outlet for me and my friends to talk about video games. Honestly, uh, that's kind of where the entire idea of the show sprang from, and that's what we plan to do. And in the spirit of having everyone who listens, kind of like get to know us a little bit better, and you know get sort of a taste of our our gaming tastes um we decided to do our first episode on our personal favorite games of all time just to give everyone like uh an idea of what they're getting themselves into with our shit um our god-awful trash opinions on video games uh, this will not follow the format that the show will normally take on. This will be more of like a one-off or closer to what I think we plan our supplemental podcast to sound like, where we'll probably take like a topic and just riff on it for a little bit. Um, usually we'll have like a little bit more of an open, opening segment before we get into our topics and stuff like that, but... Uh, we figured that would be, um, how do I want to put this a little (sighs) unnecessary for this first episode. So, uh, yeah. So how about, how do we want to go about doing this fellas? We, we all came and decided on our five favorite games of all time, Mm -hmm. right? Yep. Uh, and do we want to, I know the last time we tried this, we went kind of like just all over the place. Do we want to stick in a specific order where we go, you know, Dylan, Austin, me for five, Dylan, Austin, me for four or yeah, is that good? I think that makes the most sense. Cool. Cool. All right. Well, we'll just jump right into it for anyone who's listening dylan go ahead and tell us what is your number five sir so number five for me is a game that just from the jump just from that first hour of playing it just immediately captivates you with a heart-wrenching story and you just don't get that in really that many video games nowadays i feel like and it's the last of us um i know we're in a position right now in the world where there's a lot going on, and the most important of which is The Last of Us 2 just released. Mm -hmm. And it's not doing so great from what I hear, but I'm not going to focus on that. I'm going to focus on my love for this first game. 
And like I said, just that, you know, spoil. Should I do spoilers? Is it is it too late? Um, uh, if, if you talk about 2013, the it's then, yeah, if you're going to stick to the first one, then, then no, I don't, I don't think so. Yeah, it's it's coming up on that mark that I say 10 years is probably, you know, so I, yeah. I think you're safe. We'll give a, a spoiler warning just to be okay. safe, but... Well, in that case, Joel's daughter dies, and it's pretty <laughs> just terrible. jumps right in just there. off the rip. Yeah, I'm not even <laughs> Just you're, you're thrown into a story where the dude has everything taken from him in what seems like the blink of an eye. Mm-hmm. And then fast forward, and he's living in this world full of monsters, and the people are monsters, too. That's kind of the whole shtick of the zombie or whatever those things are genres the humans are the bad people more so than the monsters but not so much in this case because those monsters are pretty fucking terrifying um and you know you you start as joel and you start seeing how the world is operating and you meet all these interesting characters but then comes ellie and then you kind of see that relationship develop where it's like he sees in her what he's missing from his daughter and like immediately how how can you top that as a story, that's that's heart wrenching. That's compelling. It drives you to see their story to the end. And there's some there's some scenes in that game that just completely blow me away. And the one that I will always reference back to is Ellie. Just she's walking through this abandoned building, and then she gets to a part where like the wall is blown out or something. And then right there in front of her, it's a fucking giraffe, and she's just mesmerized she's blown away she's never seen anything it's the purest thing in that whole game a game full of savagery monsters just death around every corner your heart's always racing because you never know what's coming it takes you out of that completely for just a moment and it shows you this young you know young girl young woman in this devastating world and there's just a moment of purity in all of that clouded chaos and that really encapsulates what i love about that game there's just there's so much storytelling to be done the just the the sound in that game that makes you feel like you're in those moments the glass crunching beneath your feet you know going what was it a sewer where you're having to do that puzzle with the with the water palette and all that was that what that was it was like an underground cave or something. yeah something like that yeah. <clears throat> yeah i mean just everything just completely makes you feel like you're within that atmosphere and it just nails that game out of the park and just it, it drives home a story that has to be seen. Now, like I said, I've not played the second one. Probably not going to happen anytime soon. But just the first game by itself, probably one of the best games to ever be released. Well, I still have to give that game another shot. I feel like it deserves it. But. Yeah, I uh, it I have a weird, complicated relationship with that game. Uh, I much like Austin did not like it when I first played it. Ew. Um, and it's, yeah, it, it took me a second playthrough or a second time trying to play it to Appreciate really, I think, it. get it. Yeah. And w- when I did, I, you know, I was like, this is, this is really great. This is one of the best games of the last generation for sure. And, uh, for everything that you said, and even more, like I really, I really love the the moral and philosophical questions it raises about, you know, like what would you do to quote unquote protect someone you love, yeah. you know, 
Yeah. Oh, yeah, especially that ending. I mean, I'm not going to spoil that for people, but that ending alone, I mean, that sets up, from what I can understand, that sets up a huge part of the second game. Um, it's just, I mean, the moral, that the ambiguity, you know, it's like those choices that are made along the way. And especially, like, involving Ellie at the age that she's at. But then it's also, like, she's so... I mean, she is brought up in a fucked-up world. That's going to make someone grow up and just, you know, a very quick span of time. Agreed. That just really... Yeah, then it circles back to those moments of purity where she can be a girl and she can... Just a young kid and she can see, like, that giraffe. Like, she's never seen that before. Shit, I've never seen a giraffe before outside of a zoo, which I think is where that came from. Yeah. But, like... I'm a 28-year-old man. That's expected. She's what in that game? 13 or something like that? I think 13, yeah. yeah. It's just, it just bring, it brings it back to those little moments that when you're sitting there at the end of the story, you're looking back and it's like so much changes. And it's you feel for them. You feel for both Joel and Ellie. And it just really plays on your heart. And it's a beautiful game. And I like what you said, that the whole moral ambiguity, is it's there throughout the whole game. Oh Yeah, agreed, agreed. Um, another thing before we move on to Austin that I want to touch on is something that I feel like Naughty Dog does very, very well. And it's the immersive nature of the environments. Like, I feel like in every one of Naughty Dog's games, they do this really awesome thing where they give like stories to characters that we never meet in the game. And like, in this one specifically, there's like little notes jotted down or like, you know, little, uh, little like environmental storytelling details. Like there will be like an open, I don't know how to explain it, Humvee or whatever, like army tanker. And there will be like dead bodies inside. And you realize that like, you know, the soldiers couldn't even get away from this thing or, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, it completely just overran them. Like, yeah, you you really get to see environmental details like that that tell the story of what happened before. Um, you're right. I mean, it, they Naughty Dog is great with that. No matter what game they they come out with, whatever they do, they always go that extra mile to make you feel like you were there. Yeah, agreed. Uh, Austin, why don't we move on to you? What is your number five? All right. Um, so my number five has changed since we did the, uh, uh, I'm, I'm going to call it the test run episode because that's kind of what it turned <laughs> into. Um, and uh, it's one that I was actually talking about with a couple of friends. And it's kind of crazy to be a part of a really big franchise but be such a an unknown spinoff that a lot of people who are fans of that specific franchise don't, like didn't even know the game fucking existed. Um, which is Pokemon Coliseum. Oh, Ooh. been playing it nonstop for like four days now, and I just I I forgot how even for its time, it was it wasn't necessarily as good as the Gen three uh, main series games that were out at the time. I think I think when Coliseum came out, uh, Ruby and Sapphire had come out, and I think that was it for Gen three so far. Um, but it, it was different. It was it was meant to be, uh, from what I know about it, um, it was actually meant to be Pokemon Stadium 3, pretty much, but for the GameCube. And uh, they ended up 
And that when you play it, that's essentially what it feels like. It feels like Pokemon Stadium because the, the whole game is played through in double battles, which some people like, some people don't. Um, I like them because they take a lot more strategy than I feel like single battles do. And uh, like that's even why today, even like an official like VGC format, all the all the official sanctioned tournaments are double battle format because they they're more strategic. You have to take more planning into consideration than I feel like you do in, in just normal single battles. And it essentially does feel like Pokemon Stadium Three, just with a story explaining why you're in these battles, and the battles are never fucking ending. Oh my god! Like they're like one building you'll be walking through just to try to get to the main objective and you, you got people like jumping from the ceiling like just falling from the ceiling to challenge you and it's actually kind of hilarious to watch happen um the the concept of shadow pokemon was neat which again from what i know actually span off of the fourth pokemon movie i think where there was like dark pokemon that were caught in like these evil pokeballs or something weird like that and the whole purpose or the whole plot of the game is you're pretty much stealing, like you're pretty much stealing these shadow Pokemon back from, from this evil organization. And, um, I'm not going to worry too much about spoilers because this game is literally almost 20 years old. <laughs> um, but it, it was such a, it was such a unique game for its time frame to be a part of that Pokemon franchise. Like they had never really attempted something like this before. Uh, we had home console games with like uh, Pokemon Snap, which I'm really excited to see come back. That was amazing. And uh, Pokemon Stadium 1 and 2, but they were really just battle simulators. They weren't this in-depth RPG experience like Coliseum turned out to be. And, and it's hard, dude. Like For someone who's played and beaten every single Pokemon game that's released so far, including probably 90% of the spinoffs, it's it's hard. It's a challenge. Like, they do not prepare you for, for some of the uh, the difficulty curve that happens throughout the game. And, and, and every NPC, like, they're not... Especially in today's Pokemon games, like, the NPCs don't really... They don't really feel like they have a strategy. They feel like they're just using like whatever best attack that Pokemon has and are not really going for any sound strategy. Like even the gym leaders in, in Sword and Shield really didn't even feel like they had a solid strategy ready to go. Um, but in Coliseum, all of the like main I, admins of the evil organization, they all have a solid plan and, and it works. It hits you hard. I think the first... Um, the first main uh, admin from the evil team that you have to fight is actually the one who has a Shadow Entei. And his whole team is just focused on one Pokemon putting up Protect and then the other Pokemon spamming Earthquake. And that that's pretty viable. I mean, people still do that. You shouldn't because it makes you an asshole, but you can if you want to. <laughs> um, another, the second admin, uh, admin that has Shadow Suicune, her whole strategy is uh, all her Pokemon are female, so they just use Attract over and over and over. Oh, good. Yeah. And so you can't attack because your Pokemon is immobilized by love or whatever stupid text that it gives you when that happens. And it, that's infuriating. Um, I don't remember what the rest of them have because it's been so long since I've actually played the game, and like I said, I'm currently replaying it. And... Uh, even catching the shadow Pokemon is difficult because they all have the same move that does recoil damage. So if you're not careful, they can just 
knock themselves out and you miss that opportunity to catch them until you complete the main story. And uh, it, <clears throat> it it did a really good job at bridging the issues that people had with Gen 3 at the time. Because when Gen 3 came out, you only had those those new Pokemon that were introduced in Gen 3. There was no there was no way to connect the Game Boy Advance to the Game Boy Color, so you lost out on all of those Kanto and uh, Johto Pokemon that you had been collecting for the last... Like, when did Ruby and Sapphire come out? 2002, 2003? So last five, six years, you kind of wait. It's kind of wasted because you can't bring those Pokemon forward. Um, but you can connect all the Game Boy Advance games to Pokemon Coliseum and its sequel, XE, which I have never actually finished. In Coliseum, most of the Pokemon you're able to catch are Johto Pokemon, so you can kind of fill that, that Pokédex back up. So it did a really good job at allowing players to have those up, have that opportunity. And uh, if you've never played it, you should try it. I, it it's not going to blow you away. The graphics are actually awful. Even even for 2002 Yankee Bear, the graphics are really bad. But it was the first attempt at a, at a home console Pokemon game, and I can kind of respect and appreciate the, the effort that was definitely put there, or the fan service that was put there. So yeah, that's my, uh, that's my number five. Coliseum. Yeah, Coliseum was a great game. I have not played it since it probably came out. But like you said, it did so much unique stuff right. Just the introduction of the whole Shadow Pokemon, mm-hmm. uh, making you feel like you were reclaiming Pokemon that were essentially suffering to me. I mean, that was such a cool thing. It made you truly feel like a hero. I mean, it was just a unique experience back then. It made me feel reinvigorated, even at the time, however old I might have been, you know, 12, 13 years old. It reinvigorated what I already loved from red, blue, you know, gold, ruby, sapphire, all that. It just completely flipped what I knew, turned it upside down. It was kind of like Stadium. I did play Stadium, but like it added enough. And then, like, the open-world exploring you could do, it was great. I mean, it was a fantastic rendition. Well, that is... Uh, I, I'm glad that that is a game that you two have both played, because I have not. <laughs> yeah. If you ever get a GameCube, bro, you should. So, uh, the last time we did this through the test run, I had m- named my number five as Uncharted 3 Drake's Deception. Uh, and it kind of connected to the Naughty Dog theme that uh, Dylan had brought up before. And I'm not going to do that this time. I'm going to move it off because I I actually did the full 10. I think we had talked about this last time. I wrote the full 10 down, uh, and I'm going to bump Uncharted down and bring up something that is also still attached to Dylan's... uh, game choice in a way um so i think you guys know this pretty well or at the very least dylan knows this i am a huge huge fucking horror fan it's like it's my favorite genre by far like i just when it comes to movies specifically it's like far and away my favorite genre. And then when it comes to games, it's, it's pretty high up there. I think I'm probably more into the action adventure kind of third person shooter sort of thing that naughty dog does really well. My number five pick may surprise you guys 
Silent Hill 2. Oh, okay. Oh, do tell. All right. So, uh, I remember back in the day on the original PlayStation playing Resident Evil 2 and 3. I never played the first one until the remake for uh, GameCube came out. And I loved Resident Evil, but then this little game comes along from Konami called Silent Hill, and I played it, and it was so fucking terrifying and different from Resident Evil. Like, Resident Evil was is almost like, um, almost, uh, I don't want to call it an action game, because that's not very fair but compared to what silent hill was like it was almost like if you take the schlock of the 80s horror movies and then put it up against stuff that is truly like mind alteringly mind alteringly god i can't speak graphic and intense and just like horrifying Something's like, say, um, just in recent memory, I know a lot of people talk about um, hereditary being that sort of thing. Uh, for me, it's like The Exorcist. You take, you know, the slasher movies of the 80s and compare them to The Exorcist, and that's what it was, Resident Evil versus Silent Hill. And then you get to Silent Hill 2, and Silent Hill 2 took all the really cool trappings of the first game but told this like deeply sorrowful and just really, really scary story about a man who's trying to deal with his demons and his like his guilt. And it's just one of those games that like I, it's so hard to describe other than like it's great. There are, there are so many things in this game that are just really, really well thought out. Like the enemies, for instance, are, well, with the exception of really like one or two, are all tied into the sort of uh, theme of James's grief where... The, the whole plot of Silent Hill 2, before I get too far ahead of myself, is that there's this guy named James. He goes or he gets a letter from his wife saying, hey, I'm going back to this place that we loved called Silent Hill. Uh, meet me there at the hotel where we used to vacation and blah, blah, blah. And the thing about that, though, is that his wife has been dead for... I. If I remember correctly, it's like three years. So it's one of those things that's like, that's already a mind fuck. But then you find out that she died of uh, some sort of disease. I don't remember if it was cancer or what it was. But when you get to the town of Silent Hill and then you start encountering all the monsters, the monsters are all like imbued with some form of like a physical defect that kind of brings things back to her disease and her, her uh, bedriddenness and, and shit like that. And they're all kind of like ties on her death. 
And it's all about like James coming to terms with the fact that like he kind of was an asshole to his wife and like just kind of like left her to kind of die on her own without being there for her and how much of a mental toll that is like put on him. And uh, it's just, it's so good. It's such a good game. And it hasn't aged very well in the graphical department. Um, And I know that a lot of people who play survival horror games now are kind of used to the Resident Evil 4 type of like, like I said earlier, almost like action-y horror. This one is not that way at all. It's designed to make you feel like you are insignificant and that like you or not necessarily you, but James is like, he's not in exceptionally good health. He's probably overweight. He definitely looks like he's been drinking like his mechanics and the way that he will like swing his melee weapons. It's intentionally not actiony because that's not what the character would be. He's not Chris Redfield. He's not Leon Kennedy and stuff. The stuff from that game is just stuck with me for forever. And I get, I could honestly just go on and on. It's really, really great. And if you can find a PS2, go buy that game. It's so worth your time, man. I'm telling you, like you said, it'll be with you forever. And I've never once played a silent Hill game, but all I'm saying is it's almost nine o'clock at night. And just from what you described, when I get off this podcast and I go lay down, that's all I'm going to be able to think about. <laughs> that is not okay. That sounds like a terrifying time, man. Like, I'm on the opposite end of the spectrum. Like, Resident Evil was always my game. Um, yeah. I mean, for a while, the Resident Evil 2 is still one of the scariest games that I've ever played. Fuck Lickers. Um, yeah, yeah agreed. <laughs> uh, no, Silent Hill is one of those things where I knew the game franchise coming up but I always veered away from it, maybe because it looked too scary. Like, that was just one of those things. Like, I had enough fucked up shit going on as a kid. I didn't need that thrown into the mix. Um, But it looked like a great game, and admittedly, I did watch the movie, (laughs) and that was its own thing. Um, I'm I'm pretty sure both Kit Harington and... uh, I don't even know what the... the, Whoever plays Ned Stark from Game of Thrones, I forget. They were both in the the second one, I think. Yeah, yeah. So it was, I mean, it was fine. That kind of gave me a glimpse into it because I always wanted to, you know, Pyramid Head looks sick. I don't, I mean, that's yeah. one of the coolest villains or whatever you want to call them of any game ever. Um, and it just looked awesome and it looked creepy. And then the, the game that came out or was supposed to come out, Silent, what was it, Silent Hill PT or something, like the first person game? Yeah, that was. the uh, the playable teaser for the yeah. Kojima game. Yeah, oh, gosh, right. I remember and that. it just looked terrifying. Yeah, dude. <sighs> but that we were actually playing that the other night because I kept it downloaded on my console because I found out that you can't like re-download it. Right. And we were playing through it the other night on the couch, and it's one of those things that like spine chilling. Well, that's I think Silent Hill has always had that from what I've heard. I have friends that absolutely love the franchise and they always say the same thing. It's Silent Hill, too. I mean, you know, they love the whole franchise, but they always go back to Silent Hill, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, 
so I think that was a great choice for a number five, and it's one that I didn't expect, but I should have, because like you said, I know how much you love that horror genre, so it just makes sense. It's coming in somewhere on that top five. That's really cool. Yeah. Uh, why don't we move on to your number four? Okay. Um, so you're going to hate this one. Oh, okay. Uh, I kind of <laughs> It's not terrible. It's not. I mean, to me. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, there's no sugarcoating it. It's the Elder Scrolls Five Skyrim. Uh, oh God! Oh, here we go. Josh. <laughs> I haven't even gotten my sentence out. With mods, it's great. Uh, it's it's it's. You know what? Let's not even take it the mod route because I'm going to go vanilla. Eleven, eleven, eleven. When this game first came out, <sighs> like I'm not going to say that I got it day one because I was financially unable to, but I got it for Christmas. And as soon as I got it for Christmas, I do not, I cannot tell you how long I stayed up playing that game. It just completely drew me in. And it's so, Josh, I think it's the reason you hate it. It's expansive. The game is just massive. There's so much to do to the point where I'm coming back now. What is it? Nine years later. And if I turn the game on right now and explore, I can still find stuff that I've never seen before in that game. Yeah. And there's, there's so much like I think my most recent time of coming back, it was just casual. I was just exploring the world like I, I didn't I don't have to quest. I don't have to do jobs or anything like that. I can do whatever the fuck I want. So I'm just walking around and I see this burned down house. And I'm like, what the heck? I've never seen this before. So I go into the house. You know, there's a burned, charred body just sitting there on the floor. I'm like, what the hell happened? Everything's on fire all around them. And I see this little piece of paper. It's a scroll. And it's just out of the dude's reach that was burned. And I'm like, what? And I go to pick up the scroll, and it's scroll of fireball. <laughs> the dude burned his house down. Oh, oh like gosh. it was. It's just I still find stuff like that, and it's hilarious. Yeah. Like, game's been out 11 years, and I'm still finding stuff to this day. And it's just for it being set in this kind of wintry tundra-looking area. It's so diverse in its landscapes because you can have the big city on the cliffside of solitude, or you can go into that tundra plain of white run or down into the, the murky side all the way in the corner in Riften, which is close to where that house was. I was just talking about, you know, where the thieves guild is and it's kind of a darker, just murky place. And then the frozen over, um, what is it? It's a uh, winter hold. I believe no, that's the college. There's another one. I can't remember right off the top of my head. But anyway, it's just so diverse in everything that it does. And the combat for the time, I mean, now we look back at it and it's like, ah, you know, you press a button, you swing a sword, it's not too crazy. But back then, I mean, you could hold your sword in one hand and you could, I mean, I know you can do the same thing in Oblivion. I mean, well, could you? I don't think you could dual wield. I don't think so. Yeah, no, 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 no. So even then, you could, you know, have, you could be the the battle mage you could have the sword you could have the fireball spell in your left hand or you know whatever um i'm the i'm the schmuck who does the whole stealth archer thing just because that's one of the most fun classes in any video game i've ever played makes me feel overpowered the fact that i can take out the whole entire room before they ever see me that's pretty awesome um but yeah i mean back then the combat was just something that drew me in just as quickly as the world did i mean the quests are pretty straightforward um, I did enjoy all of the the factions that you could uh, find, like the the Thieves Guild's probably my favorite. Just that carries over from Oblivion. I loved uh, that questline as well. But then the Dark Brotherhood in this game kind of throws you for a loop. Um, spoiler alert, 
kill the emperor of, uh, what is it, Tamriel, Syria, or whatever, the world that they live in, and then, uh, like, there's some serious betrayal. You come back, and your family is essentially burning <laughs> right in front of your eyes. I mean, it's it's a messed up game. It has, for the type of game that it is, you know, and I take it back, it's a nine-year-old game. It's been done before, you know, like, Bethesda kind of has that copy-paste, you know, I mean, let's think about how different Fallout 4 and Skyrim really is when you look at, you know what I'm saying? Like, they're pretty close. They just Everything it did for the time, it just completely, and I love playing the game. I can go back now, and if I play for five minutes or five hours, I'm still enjoying myself. So it had to go in at number four for me. That's fair, and I think you hit it right on the head. I think that part of the reason that I do not like that game is because of how just expansive it is um it's my biggest problem with the witcher 3 i don't know if it's still going to remain on your list but that it's that's my biggest problem with the witcher 3 is there's just too much (laughs) shit to do and i i don't there are other problems i have with that game i really feel like bethesda is specifically starting with like fallout 3 they get a pass on a lot of the shit that they do. And everyone's just like, Oh, that's the Bethesda charm. (laughs) And I I don't think that that's really fair. Like you're right. The shooting in fallout three and fallout four, right? The shooting in those two games is fucking dog (laughs) shit. And that's why the VATS system exists. The entire reason that the VATS system in those games exists is because Bethesda couldn't figure out how the fuck to get people to be able to shoot correctly. Yeah, it's like, we like, can't do gunplay. Let's just automate the bullets for you to go right for their head. Yeah. <laughs> and, like... Pretty much. That's pretty accurate. Yeah. I, and there, I feel like the combat in Skyrim was f- somehow a downgrade from what it was in Oblivion, which I, I think... For, that's my favorite Elder Scrolls game. Uh, I think Morrowind's probably the best in terms of like <sighs> maximizing like fun with like expansiveness. But Oblivion is just really, really great. I I adore that game, and I don't know Skyrim just never did it for me, man. And I've tried to go back to it several times, and. Each time I do go back to it, there's a little bit more that I like, but it's never enough to keep me engaged and being like, yeah, I want to continue to play this. Well, you know, you keep trying maybe 10 years from now you like the game. Yeah, I know. I'll be liking a fucking 40-year-old game at that point. (laughs) (laughs) When it comes to Skyrim, I have bought, and I I wish that I was exaggerating, I have bought every re-release of that game. They've come out with on a console <laughs> that I own. Still couldn't play more than two hours. Oh man! I don't know why. I bought it on the. I had it on the 360. I had it on the PS3. I had it on the PS4. I had. It, I have it on the Xbox One. I have it on the fucking Switch, and I still have yet to play more than two hours. It sounds like you have a problem. <laughs> <laughs> that would be correct. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have a problem with, like, even if it's a game that I don't think I'm going to like, 
if I see it for a reasonable price. Now, I didn't buy all those re-releases at full price. Like, when I bought it on the Switch, it was on the eShop for 20 bucks uh, during their Christmas sale. I was like, $20 for Skyrim? Even if I don't play that much of it, it's so expansive that it's kind of worth $20. Yeah. So I bought it anyway. Have I played it? No, I don't even think I started it up on the Switch. <laughs> Like, I, I think I downloaded it and then uninstalled it, like, two weeks later without even touching it. But uh, it, it, whenever I see a game on sale for any system, regardless, especially on the Switch, especially physically on the Switch, even if I don't think I'm going to like it, I, I typically buy it anyway. And I should probably stop doing that because I've gotten <laughs> a lot of games that I hated. But, uh, you know, it's part of, uh, part of collecting, I guess. You just take a risk on stuff, and sometimes you don't like it, and sometimes you sell it off. Sometimes you gotta bite the bullet and you don't get anywhere near what you paid for back, but you know, sometimes that happens. It's the the risk of collecting. Agreed. Um, or agree to disagree since Dylan thinks it's a good game when it's not. Uh <laughs> I don't I don't think it's a bad game. I'm I don't think that it's absolute I mean it's fine with but I didn't think Bethesda was a shit company before Fallout seventy six came out, but so I don't hate it. I, I just just medieval stuff in general is just, I, it's never been able to grasp me. Like the whole uh, medieval Middle Earth aspect. Like I I can't. I just not. I can't do it. Dude. I don't know why. Well, how about <laughs> we leave that the terrible terrible game? I'm just kidding. Oh yeah, no no you're not. You're serious. <laughs> I'm hurt right now. Uh. Let's go to Austin. What's what's your number four? Um, so I talked about it uh, in the in the test run episode, but I don't feel like I went as in depth as you probably can for a game like this. Um, my number four is Kingdom Hearts Two. Yes, and it probably Kingdom Hearts Two will forever be the best of that franchise to me. Um, <clears throat> Kingdom Hearts Three was great, but it was kind of the disappointment and the letdown and a lot of aspects. But uh, Kingdom Hearts 2, it just, it it really, it was an emotional thing for me, I guess, because I've always, even as an adult, um, everyone's like, oh, well, it's because you got kids, you love Disney movies. I'm like, nah, bro, I've just, I've always loved that shit. I love Disney movies. Even without, even if I never had kids, I'd still probably be going to theaters and watching Disney movies, because they're always, Disney always puts out just quality, uh, quality stuff. And so... Someone who always loved Disney movies growing up, and then someone who also fell in love with the uh, uh, JRPG genre of gaming. It was just kind of a no-brainer that I would inevitably fall in love with the franchise. Um, I actually played Kingdom Hearts 2 before playing Kingdom Hearts 1. I had no idea what the story was about. I had no, as you can probably guess, I had no idea what was going on in that story. Oh yeah, until still lost. Yeah, oh, dude, that's I, exactly what I was gonna I say. But I mean, even playing every single game and then waiting on three to come out, you still kind of have no idea what's oh, happening yeah, there's when you're no playing through three. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, three. The problem with three was even even some of the characters in the game themselves acted like we don't really know what's happening. We just know that something big's gonna happen. We don't know what. We don't know how. We don't know where, but we'll, we'll figure it out as you go, I guess. But the 
the main relationship in Kingdom Hearts 2 that kind of hit me um, after I played Kingdom Hearts 1 and then played the spinoffs and then got really big into the franchise um, was the relationship between Roxas and, uh, and Sora. With Roxas coming off of the DS spinoff, uh, what was that ridiculous name, 358 slash 2 days? or something like that, that was just, it, it seemed like there for a while, Kingdom Hearts, whenever they were making the game, they were like, okay, let's just bring up a bunch of word generators, and whatever comes up is what we're going to pat and slap on that title. <laughs> um, but the, the Roxas feeling like he, he's told because he's a nobody, and he's not technically supposed to exist, he doesn't have a heart, he can't feel emotions, um, he's being told that he, he doesn't belong here. He's not meant to be alive. He's not meant to be in this cast of people. And then when you play the final mix version, I, I think this was the difference between Kingdom Hearts 2 and the final mix was, um, when Sora kind of blacks out and he has that encounter in his subconscious pretty much. Um, in the original Kingdom Hearts, it's just a cutscene between Sora and Roxas, but in the final mix that was released on the PS3, um, it's actually a full-blown boss fight, and it's pretty much just you slapping around Roxas. Oh. And at the, end of the, at the end of the fight, Roxas is like, you know, one of the pieces of dialogue he said specifically that I can remember is he, he looks up at Sora just before bashing him with dual-wheeled keyblades, and he was like, why you? Like, why, why are you supposed to exist? And I'm not. And it was just kind of that emotional um, aspect. I think it was me going through, like, growing up and kind of dealing with the uh, very specific, uh, somewhat kind of dark issues that I dealt with and went through. And also playing through a story of a character who, for completely, obviously, fictional reasons, uh, what trying to figure out why he's here when everyone's telling him he shouldn't be, or why he's here whenever he feels like he, while he feels like he shouldn't be, um, really made me kind of fall hardcore for that franchise, and is part of the reason why I'm so disappointed in three. I think we uh, we covered this the last time we we tried doing this episode with the with the test podcast. Um, I had only played the first one uh, well and a few of the handheld ones so i've never actually gotten to experience two but that is crazy they are um i it wasn't a thing when we did the test run but it is now um all kingdom hearts games are actually free right now on a game pass oh yeah yeah i remember that uh or i remember seeing that i should say yeah, I I own them on PS4, so not a big deal for me. But yeah, get to it, bro. Yeah, I mean, it's now now's a good time to jump into it. I mean, what? However you want to look at it, I guess what the story is complete now, and I'm not even yeah remotely close to finishing three. I was severely disappointed, and I shut it off probably at the Frozen World. Is oh, you haven't. Oh, now I feel that. Yeah, it was not good. Um, I'm a huge fan of Kingdom Hearts 1 and 2 to the point where I wanted and still might to this day get a heartless tattoo somewhere. Um, it's just... I feel like I just spoiled like a, a really big plot point for you. And I'm sorry. Oh, no, 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 no. Because, I mean, <laughs> I, 
as a fan of the game, I couldn't finish it, so I went back and I had to read pretty much, you know, yeah. a few synopsis of what happened. I mean, I get it. You know, that's if that's how it comes to a conclusion, fine. But just, I'm going to pretend three does not exist. I'm just going to focus on two and one. I mean, they were great games. Mm-hmm. And I always wanted that third um, installment. But if it would have ended at two and not had 87 different little spinoff games on yeah. every single handheld system to ever exist, yeah. I could have stayed out of the story. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but just for what it was, two had fantastic worlds characters you could truly relate to the combat was so much fun oh absolutely yeah and you little challenges that you could go back and do i mean you could fight i mean you could do it in the first game too but just that fight with like sephiroth i mean that was so much Dude, fun. i don't even the, the, oh, huh that's the most stressful thing i think i've ever oh, done in a video game so bad is yeah. fighting sephiroth it's so stressful, but and it's it's a fun fight. Like that was in the days Absolutely. of. Yeah, I mean, it was like if you messed up, you get to do the whole thing again. There's not some midway through the boss checkpoint that you get the you get to do it all again. And he is not easy. No. He has a lot of health, and it's a huge fight, and it just doesn't end. It was such a fun game. Like the battle of it. I I swear that damn sword reaches across the entire fucking map that you're fighting on. Like you cannot. Hide <laughs> no, it's there's nothing to hide behind. It will hit you. No, but no, it just it had a really good story and characters. Like I said, that I mean, you nailed it with Roxas. I mean, Roxas is kind of like I think it was probably around that same time period for me. And maybe we were all going through that, you know, <laughs> around that time period. I don't know. But Roxas struggling with existence. I mean, that's pretty hard hitting for a game that has, you know, Ariel, the little mermaid swim. Disney characters. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, that's what I'm saying. Like, everybody... I feel... I have a lot of friends that have never played the franchise, and they're like, no, it's too... It's too kid-friendly for me, bro. I'm like, um... Remember that cutscene where Shion literally dies and rocks his hands? Yeah, I cried like a bitch. (laughs) Cried for, like, 30 minutes. It is not a kid-friendly game. That game That game, it takes... It's called Kingdom Hearts because it makes you feel your heart quite, quite often throughout that whole entire... I mean, that's what it's all about. Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like that game is truly meant to connect you with your feels, and it does a great job. Fuck every other game. Kingdom Hearts 1 and 2, that's where it ends for me. And those games truly were fantastic. I'm going to be honest with you. Kingdom Hearts makes me sleepy. It, it, I'm sure it has that effect on a lot. <laughs> uh, oh, boy. So my number four also kind of ties into uh, the theme that you guys were talking about with Kingdom Hearts, where it like affected you at young ages. Final Fantasy VIII is my number four. And I won't go too in-depth on it because I feel like it's a lot of, like it's a game that a lot of people dislike. Uh, and I think I understand why. But... I mean, it's not Final Fantasy Ten. God, it's it's a it's a Final Fantasy. <laughs> like that that name doesn't fucking mean much now in 2020. Not the way it did in what uh, this game was 98, I think, or 99, one of the two. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I so this game came out when I was ten, or or close to being ten. And I didn't really like, uh, 
play it until I was probably around 11 or 12. But I remember, I remember that this was my first foray into sort of, um, I don't want to say mature storytelling because that is actually going to be closer to my number one pick. But uh, it was definitely my first foray into something that was like longer form storytelling. And um, I just really gelled with the characters, even though like I've played through the Final Fantasy VIII remastered on PS4 a little bit. And the characters do not hold up nearly as well as I remember them holding up. Like Squall's just a fucking asshole, straight up. The other, I think it was like a couple days ago or maybe a week ago, I was playing it and there's this scene where uh, Quistus is sitting there with him and trying to explain to him about how how she's feeling and like how like she feels lonely and stuff like that. And Squall just basically straight up tells her like, I don't really care. Like (laughs) Jesus, which is such a shitty thing to do. And the, but the thing is, is, um, you know, later on in the story, he kind of grows and evolves and learns to care about, you know, the party members that come along with him and starts to let go of uh, the fact that he was kind of abandoned as a child. And I don't know, that just really spoke to me because uh, I always I always felt out of place and I still in many, many ways feel out of place. Like I like horror movies, but I also like don't like metal. I really like I don't know. I I would almost I don't want to call it adult contemporary, but it's like I like fucking Death Cab and the killers. Yeah, like I don't like the things that should like be a part of the other fandoms that I'm a part of. If that makes sense. Do like the killers of Point Point. No, what was that? I said I don't. I don't know many people that do like the killers of Point Point. Yeah. (laughs) So I I don't know I'm my interests are very diverse and very like mm-hmm. uh, almost antithetical to one another and so I still to this day feel very out of place with a lot of stuff and Final Fantasy VIII was kind of that game that was like hey even if you're out of place and even if you don't have a home like you can find a home with other people and that's okay. And that really spoke to me as like, like I said, like a middle schooler and there are still so many parts of that game that I just adore. Like, I think that it has the best musical score of any of the final fantasies, like bar none. Um, I really, really think that even though the like character models, uh, were polyg- polygonal and ugly, like PS One renders. The um, uh, what are you, what the hell are they called? The the backgrounds. They were pre-rendered backgrounds. That's what it is. Um, the pre-rendered backgrounds of Final Fantasy VIII are just gorgeous. They're stunning. They're on par with Final Fantasy VII, I think. And I, this is a. Uh, part where I think a lot of people are like 
they hate on the game. But I think that the battle system and the custom customization that can come with that is really top tier. Like if you want to min max, you can min max it just, it's built that way. And I, I really love it. I still adore it. I don't think it's the best final fantasy. I think six and maybe even four are the best final fantasies. Uh, but eight holds a special place in my heart. Yeah, man, I know it does because if it if it gets you to bust out the what was it the Vita on break and just start playing, yep. it, I, mean, <laughs> I love that game. And that's a special kind of game to where you can play it years and years later. I mean, I'm not going to compare it to Skyrim, but that's kind of my equivalent. Like it's nine years down the line for me, whereas you know Final Fantasy VIII is what twenty years down the line for you, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, it's I don't know how long it is, but it's a it's an old yeah, game. very old. But like I said, I've caught you right there in our office on your Vita with only fifteen minutes, and you are spending that time playing Final Fantasy yeah. VIII, and I think that's really cool. Yeah, it's it's something else, man. If it, if you guys, if anyone who's listening, uh, including you guys, has any affinity for JRPGs, I really think you should give it a shot. I really do. It, it might not be for you, and that's okay. But I I think it's a really great game. Uh, how about we move on to your number three, Dylan? My number three is controversial and party right now. Because everyone else loves it except for you two fuckers, apparently. <laughs> um, oh, God. Is it The Witcher 3? Wow, what a great guess. It's The Witcher 3. <laughs> Okay. Listen, man, I, I want to preface this real quick. I do not hate The Witcher 3. Mm. I think that The Witcher 3 is really, really great. Okay. I just can't because play it's it. it's too big. There's too much to do. There's too much to see. There's too many people. There's just too much. You're the only yeah. one that complains about this shit. <laughs> oh, my God. All right. I love how fast he's just blurting out. <laughs> I don't hate The Witcher 3. I It has to be good, considering I'm pretty sure to this day it is still the highest awarded game of all time. It's something up there like that. And for good reason. I mean, you can't... I'm, I'm going to try... I think last time in this whole test podcast that we keep referencing, I delved into the story. I'm not going to do that this time, because if you've not played it, I think it's a special game that you need mm-hmm. to play. It's... From the first opening scene where you're finding out about, and I'm gonna, I'm not gonna lie, I did not play The Witcher one or two, nor did I ever read the books. I just got The Witcher three because it looked like a really cool game. And as soon as I started playing it, again, it was almost like The Last of Us. Just that opening thirty minutes, it's like, what the fuck just happened? You know, it's like you see this. I'm not gonna say it's as heartbreaking as what happens to Joel and The Last of Us. It's not, especially because you're playing this badass monster hunter. You know he's got some skills to get mm-hmm. his loved ones back. That's fine. But it still gets you into that point where it's like, what happens next? And just from your first moments of exploring the game all the way up until the end when you're finishing the last DLC, because I promise you, if you play the game from start to end, there's no way you are not going to want to get the DLC because the DLC expands on the game, obviously, and makes it so much better. And everyone loves uh, Blood and Wine, which is the last DLC. My favorite was the first one released, Hearts of Stone. Quite honestly, 
one of the best downloadable contents ever released. I don't care. I'll put that. That's my money. Like, take it all. There's no other DLC that comes close to that. I mean, if there is, I'd like to know it. Um, it just truly takes you back to that first hour in the game. And it 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 makes so many callbacks. And it comes full circle, the Hearts of Stone DLC does. And it's just perfect. But on top of that, what the main game does well is everything. To me, I mean, I think the side quests in that game, if you don't know can pretty much be summed up as you don't know that you're playing a side quest or doing a side quest because you're just the one that I will always reference. It's the same one. If you've played the game, you know it. It's called the Bloody Baron quest line. I don't know what the actual thing is, but essentially you're helping this dude find his wife and it's almost lengthy enough to make you believe it's a part of the story. It's not. You just care so much about it because they're constantly compelling you to go forward. You want to find his wife and his daughter. He's kind of a fucked up person. He's not a good person whatsoever, but you still want to find the two people that are good people. You know what I'm saying? It's like you you want to find those guys and find out what happened to them, and it doesn't sugarcoat it. You know something really fucked up happened immediately just from the whole scenario that's going on. And it's not a nice scenario. This game is not for children. I don't say that often, but I would not recommend this game to children <laughs> just because of some of the, the, the aspects that it tackles. And this one side quest alone, I, I reference it all the time because I thought it was a part of the main story. No. In fact, I saw two different quest markers. It's like, hey, go here and do this, find this person. That was the main quest. But I'm over here doing the side quest that lasts for hours and hours. And it just it draws you in and that's just one of the side quests the game is full of so much stuff to do whether it's doing monster contracts to you know earn some money find some gear finding the witcher gear which is like badass sets of armor just exploring the landscapes there's so many different landscapes it's like skyrim but better because you have the swampy nasty lands of velen which at the time of playing i mean it was kind of like I was taking the depression that I was feeling and projecting it onto the screen, and I no longer felt like it was in me because it's like this just nasty, murky place full of just darkness is right there in front of you. But they still make they do such a good job at bringing that kind of environment alive and making you feel like you want to take that next step. You want to go around that next bend. You want to see what's around the corner, even though what's around that corner is going to be deathly nasty. It can probably kill you. It's something that has to be experienced. And it's like, it did a good job at taking me out of whatever I was feeling in real life and completely immersed me into this game that is really hard pressed to be beaten. CD Projekt Red struck gold they busted their asses to create that game and it shows and i don't say that much like even red dead 2 i can find my problems with that game as great as it is like but the witcher 3 i cannot find a single complaint i know people say that they can't really take the combat but i've always had a blast with it especially because you can level up your skill trees to fit the the nature of the style of playing that you're doing um it is a lot of like parries and dodging and stuff like that kind of dark souls ish but it's just it was a lot of fun and you always want to invest more into the characters that you're finding in the the world like uh, you know the, the famous names of the witcher like triss and yennefer and siri 
you know, the the warring kings or emperor, whatever, like Radovid and Amir. Like you want to you want to get to know these people. And if you've read the books and you've played the previous games, that I can't imagine how that must feel jumping into this masterpiece, you know, seeing the story to conclusion. I jumped in at three and felt like I missed nothing because it did such a good job of explaining everything to me. And number three for me, Witcher 3. Dude, yeah, I I agree with everything you said. Uh, One thing that, like, you pulled out that I think is, like, very, very... um, telling of the amount of work that CD Projekt Red did in this game is they make every character believable and they make every side quest feel like it's its own story worth of, or like its own game worth of story. I don't, that's probably a bad way to phrase that, but like there are side quests in this game that have better story and better plotting than like triple a releases like just straight the fuck up like the one that you mentioned is with the bloody baron i think is really good and it's um i i forget the name of the quest but there's one that i always reference and it's the one where you go to find this guy's missing wife and you go and you find her corpse and it's being like raided by wolves or whatever and then you find out that it was due to a werewolf attack. And so you go into the hut or, or something like that, or sorry, that's actually not quite right. So you find the, the, the body and the sister of the, the dead woman comes and she tells you that she was secretly in love with the, uh, the dead woman's husband. And, was like I knew that he was a werewolf and I I thought you know if I just show her that he's a werewolf she'll be disgusted and she'll leave him for me and you know whatever and then you you have to end up fighting the werewolf I don't remember exactly why that happens but you end up having to fight him and then as you're about to deal the killing blow she comes in and she confesses all of it and it tears him apart that he's the one who killed his wife. And it's because she, you know, she loved him, but I I don't know. It's just, there's such wonderful moral ambiguity in there. And like he says, like you, you're given the option of whether or not to like tell her to flee or so that you can get the final killing blow on him or, whether or not to to leave yourself where he's going he's going to kill her like that's just what's going to happen it's uh the the writing in that game is so fucking good it is and uh yeah man you i mean you're you're what you're talking about is what when i mentioned the bloody baron quest line you were led there through the main story like you eventually get there to do something for the main story and then you can sidetrack off and find his wife and do all the stuff i was talking about what you just said that's like you're just in this town and you can check the notice board for like a quest if you want and you can get it that way but i also think if i'm not mistaken you can get it through them just by talking 
you're not led there whatsoever. This is just one of those quests that you stumble upon. Yeah. And like you said, it leads you on this. It's almost like you, you're a detective. I mean, just really like you're trying to figure out what happened. And there's more and more fucked up shit that you find along yeah. the way that event- eventually leads you down into that cave where you fight the werewolf. And like you said, you have to make that ultimate decision. What do you do? And that choice is all up to you. And that's why they knocked that game out of the park. Yeah. The, and that's the reason that I think everyone's excited for cyberpunk, uh, 2077. Oh, like, yes. The, the amount of detail that those guys gave in their characters and their world building and their storytelling in Witcher 3 is going to be there for Cyberpunk and I think that's why everyone's so excited for that game. Absolutely. Yeah, they're going they're going they're going to crush it with I know everyone's saying, you know, don't get your hopes up or whatever, but if there's one game company that deserves your full-on trust, I I have to give it the CD Project Red like they just create works of art mm. every time. Agreed. Uh so Austin, how about your number 3? Oh god! I almost didn't even want to put it back on here um, because oh, I actually man. said it to to a buddy of mine, and uh, you actually met him. The uh, I mean, right, Josh? It was uh, okay. Matt, the uh, little, little little short kid that was walking around with a four logo. Ah, yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he, I brought this up to him, and, and he hard like wholeheartedly uh, disagrees with me. So I'm sure. A lot of other people probably will too, but my number three of all time is actually Breath of the Wild. Yes. Okay. I every every time I say that to somebody, they immediately shit on me, and they're like, "Well, it's not Ocarina of Time, bro." It's like, mm, okay, let me explain to you why uh, Breath of the Wild is actually kind of better, <laughs> a little bit better than Ocarina of Time. It's the first Zelda game of its kind. And that's kind of that's that's something that The Legend of Zelda has always done right, is that each and every game they release almost in in, in its own way feels like a different genre of, of game. They all feel so much different from each other, and of course that has to do with the aspect that you know not every um, not every link is the same link. They're all like reincarnations of previous links, and all the Zeldas are reincarnations of previous Zeldas. Um, except for, I think there's a few exceptions. Uh, like I think Spirit Tracks is the technical sequel to uh, Phantom Hourglass, but uh, nobody played those games anyway because they were awful, so they don't even fucking matter. But Breath of the Wild, it, it, the moment you start that game up and you, you walk out of the Shrine of Resurrection. And you're you're looking over the Great Plateau, and you see you're with with a name like the Legends of Zelda and, and the history that the franchise has before it, it. It's very tone setting that you you expect to walk out of the Shrine of Resurrection and see this beautiful, uh, uh, beautiful Hyrule, just glorious kingdom. But that's not what you see when you step out of the Shrine of Resurrection. You see this kingdom that is literally in certain uh, parts of the map on fire. It's this destroyed kingdom that was overrun by, by darkness and monsters. And it really kind of sets in like, okay, this is, this is going to be a, a big adventure. And uh, it kind of is 
the Skyrim of the Zelda franchise, and I don't like to say that, but that is kind of exactly how it feels. You, you have that open freedom to do whatever you want. I mean, you, you can walk out of the Shrine of Resurrection and immediately go fight Ganon. If that's what you want to do, if you want to pick up a tree branch and think, hey, bro, like I'm, I'm going to go take on Ganon, you shouldn't do that. But if you want to, the option's there. Or you can do what you're supposed to do and free all the divine beasts and get all those ridiculously overpowered power-ups. Um, but it was very, it was a very free game. It, it's the first game in a long time where I've ever sat down and I started up and I'm, I feel like, I genuinely feel like I can do whatever I want to. I feel like I can take on any different challenge however I want to. And that's a very freeing thing from someone who pretty much only plays JRPGs at this point. Um, it's a different experience, even, like I said, even compared to every other Zelda game that came before it, none of them even closely feel the way that Breath of the Wild does. And I even finished Breath of the Wild, I was like, alright, now I'm going to go play the Link's Awakening remake. Do you know how hard that was? was such such a different journey, such a different experience. And even the physics in Breath of the Wild are on point. Like, you can't you can't climb a mountain when it's raining because you're going to slip. Or you can't have a metal shield or a metal sword equipped while it's thunderstorming because the lightning's going to strike you. Or if you get too close to a volcano, you're, you're overheated and you're losing health. And even, I think, when you start getting close to Death Mountain, you literally can just randomly combust into, into flames. And it really makes the game more challenging because it has this RNG uh, weather element where you can't always... You can't just climb a mountain just to jump off and paraglide because if it's storming down rain, you have to think of another way to get around that mountain. So it was very, uh, it's a very challenging game. I haven't played it on master mode yet, and dear love of God, I don't want to. Um, I probably will eventually, but not not any anytime soon. And uh, that is my number three. That's a good game, man. Just up at La. Uh... This past week, I just got back on it, and I didn't dabble too much. But as soon as you get in, it just makes you feel some type of way. Like, the game is so beautiful, and it's, like you said, you know, it's kind of like that Skyrim element. It's expansive. There's so much to see. There's so much to do. You can lose yourself for hours on end, and you don't have to do jack shit in that game. You don't have to go fight Ganon or do the Divine Beasts or do any type of quest. You can literally just sit there and mm-hmm. explore and capture horses and you know find the shrines and do those puzzles. That is the most fun to me is doing the shrine puzzles. Like That's so much fun. I have a blast with that. Oh, yeah. I, I didn't even touch on the shrines. Yeah. They're... There's so much fun. There's so many of them. Yeah, I think there's 120 in total, and then with the with the DLC, it adds like seven or eight more. And then the Korok seeds. I mean, there's always something to do. You can find how, fucking thousand Korok seeds. Um, just walking around, it's super fun. That's a little puzzle in itself half the time. Mm-hmm. And I mean, there's there's so much to do. It's overwhelming how much there's so much to do. But um, like I I hadn't played. It's funny enough, I. Signed on on July, the, the, I think the same day you were just talking about, July 3rd, you know, the day before 4th of July. And then I started to open up my last save, and it was July 4th oh. of the previous year, so I had waited a full year. I don't. I guess that's just the time it took for me to have a hangover. Mm-hmm. 
And then I opened it up and it's like I remembered everything that I was. Oh, doing. yeah. I remembered. I mean, that's hard. That's hard for me with any game because usually it's like, oh, shit, what did I? Ah, fuck it. Let's just start over. You know, I have that moment. But with Breath of the Wild, it was it was like I had just seen an old friend and I had all those old memories and yeah. I could play and do everything that I wanted to do. And it just there's so much like you said, it cracks me up because I could be walking three feet from Death Mountain, like the little perimeter, and I'm going to burst into flames because I don't have the proper gear equipped, mm-hmm. which then forces you to be like it, it forces you to think. And that's why I like the game. It does not hold your hand like any of these other. No, you, not even remote, not even close. It's like, OK, I'm catching on fire. What the hell do I do to not catch on fire so I can go take on this divine beast, go see, you know, this town up the hill. You have to either, you know, find some viable clothing, got to make some kind of food that lets you withstand heat. You have to do something. You have to invest yourself into the game to make it to the next area. And it's not going to tell you anything at all on how to do it. And well, you know, within reason, it's your job to investigate, to find out that answer. And I think it does that beautifully. A hilarious anecdote um, about Death Mountain while I was playing the game was, uh, (laughs) I know that there's a right way to do it. There's a right way to get the specific armor that you need before you get too close to the mountain. But I could not, for the life of me, find the NPC that my buddy was telling me about that will sell me or trade me the armor I need. But he was like, or you can just, you know, beeline it to to the city by the mountain and they sell the (laughs) armor there. So I literally just ran. And every two seconds, I was opening up my menu and eating all the food I could to get all of my arts. That's a viable method. Like, that's a way to do it. It's up to you. It's like it kind of puts you in that same boat. You choose how you play the game and you live with your consequences one way or another. If you're halfway to Death Mountain, you can't go back because you've already wasted half your food. You got to keep going Mm -hmm. or you're going to die. You're done. You You have to just go straight. And, uh, Another thing I loved about Breath of the Wild was the – it really felt – there's a lot of debate between Zelda fans in which specific timeline Breath of the Wild falls into because there's um, – and I think they're, they're all kind of hang off of Ocarina of Time. There's a timeline where Link defeats Ganon and then lives his life as an adult and moves forward from there. There's a timeline where Link defeats Ganon and Zelda sends him back in time to relive his childhood. And then there's a timeline where uh, Link actually loses and is slain by Ganon. And there's a lot of confusion as to where Breath of the Wild falls because it has aspects of all three of these timelines mixed together. And then even when you're running around this destroyed version of Hyrule, there's references to every single past Zelda game that's come before it. Like, I think in the Great Plateau, the, the first place that you have to go to to talk to the ghosts that you meet, uh, you have it's literally the Temple of Time from Ocarina of Time. It's a destroyed Temple of Time. Yep, it is. And then the, uh, the, the Fire Dragon from the Fire Temple in Ocarina of Time. I can't remember its name. I don't want to butcher its name because it sounds very much like a uh, scientific term uh, for a woman's genitals. So I'm not going to butcher it, but uh, like it's it, uh, its skull. You can find its skull on a, on a beachfront in Breath of the Wild. Or what is presumed to be its skull. There's no definitive proof that that's what it is, but 
it looks exactly like it. And it's just got these little goblins just like hiding out in its skull. And uh, so it's little stuff like that. I know there's a lot, there's a lot of landscapes from Twilight Princess that are scattered around the map that you can run up to and encounter. And uh, it really seems like Nintendo just knocked it out of the park when they did Breath of the Wild. They're like, okay, we're not going to stick this game to one specific uh, set of events. We're just going to create basically to me what feels like a brand new timeline. That's what I'm convinced it is. I'm convinced that Breath of the Wild is just a brand new timeline. But yeah. Well, Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild is your number three. My number three is also a Legend of the Zelda game. Uh, or technically games. Uh, my number three is... Spirit Tracks and Phantom Hourglass. <laughs> it, uh, it's uh, Legend of Zelda Oracle of Ages slash Seasons. Uh, because I couldn't decide which one I wanted to put on there. Uh, so... I think that Zelda has its home in the top-down 2D space. I think that that is where it plays best, and those are definitely my favorite Zelda games. Yeah, I remember that horrible thing. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And... That's not to say that the 3D Zeldas are bad. Uh, I have a special affinity for Wind Waker and Majora's Mask um, because those games are fucking weird. And I I don't know. I just, to me, I feel like 2D Zelda is the best Zelda. And there's no game so far that has changed my mind on that. Breath of the Wild is probably the one that has come the closest. Um, okay. and I, I, I that's don't, because I don't agree with you, but I feels... respect where you're coming from. I can definitely understand it. <laughs> uh, yeah, Bre- so Breath of the Wild is the one that uh, has come the closest to capturing the same sense of uh, openness that I feel like those um, original games had. Um, but the reason that I think Oracle of Ages and Oracle of Seasons is up there for me is because of the fact that they were my introduction to the Zelda series after the first Zelda game. Mm -hmm. So I never owned an uh, SNES. Um, I've played games on the SNES, but it was never something that I owned. I had played the original Zelda and... You know, it was fun. I I thought that it had like some cool mechanics and stuff like that, but it was never one of my favorites. And then when the two Game Boy Color games came out, you know, Oracle of Ages and Oracle of Seasons, I got to revisit that series, and I just adore those games. They're kind of like light versions of... A Link to the Past, mm-hmm. wherein, like, instead of going to the past, you have this little wand that will change either the seasons or, like, the ages in in the respective games. And it, it gives you, like, new—I don't want to say mechanics because that's not the right word, but it gives you, like— almost like a Metroidvania-type thing where, like, you can go back to new areas that you couldn't access before— until you had changed, you know, the season or the age. And I I found that mechanic, like, really, really cool. And it just did something, like, with the intertwining stories 
that really captured my imagination where you could kind of almost import your save into the other one. So like you play, you know, uh, ages first and then you've had a specific boss fight. But then when you would go into seasons and follow that up, it was uh, like a different version of that same boss fight, if I remember correctly. And I just, I, I don't know, man. Zelda has a special place in my heart because of these games. And that's why they're there. I definitely think that there are better Zelda games out there. Like, I, for instance, you know, Link to the Past, A Link Between Worlds even. Um, I haven't played the uh, the remake of Link's Awakening for the Switch yet. But um, I've heard that that's like an even better representation of what 2D Zelda is. But to me, whenever I think about Zelda, these are the games that immediately come to mind. And, and I think they're beautiful. I think the, the music is, is wonderful. And uh, I, I don't know. I just I really, really, really like these games. Yeah, I've never played them, but when you talk about them, it kind of makes me want to play them. They're really good. I really, uh, they're available on the uh, the eShop for the 3DS, and I really think that, like, yeah, if you want to like go when, yeah, yeah, they're like five bucks a piece. That's not bad. If you want to go back and, like, take a look at, like, what the Game Boy Color was all about, you can go back and you can play these games you can play gold and silver i th- i think those are available in the eShop. i could be wrong but if you oh, want to yeah. on the eShop, they have a um all of gen one and gen two okay cool yeah like if you if you own a 3ds go back and buy some of these game boy games because they're really really special mm-hmm. they even have a, a although if you own a switch you can literally play them for free um, but they they even have uh, um, the original Zelda and Zelda 2 on the uh, 3DS eShop. Very cool. Very cool. So this what brings us to our number twos, right? Yep. Dylan, what's yeah. your number there. two? And it's a good uh, speaking of Pokemon. I mean, Ooh, shit. This one, Pokemon has been in my life since it first came to America. Um, played Red and Blue. Played gold and silver and crystal was ultimately my favorite um and then soul silver came out and soul silver to this day remains my favorite pokemon game because they did so much right in that game and they have not replicated it since i love diamond and pearl platinum i think those were fantastic games and it was in the same era as uh soul silver heart gold but soul silver man it just did so much right from the very beginning i mean pokemon being able to follow you that is something up until, uh, spoiler alert, Josh, and the Sword and Shield DLC, that wasn't possible up in, you know, uh, aside from Soul Silver, Hard Gold. That's something that we've wanted forever because that game immediately drove it into our hearts that, hey, these are our buddies. You know, that was something that was just something we had always wanted. Mm. And it has such an engaging story. Uh, just. If you never played Heart or not Heart Gold, but just the original Gold and Silver, and you didn't know the story, this one just—I mean, it just—it did a great job at taking what Gold and Silver did. It put it in those, you know, for the time, modern-day graphics. It 
made you connect even more with what was going on, you know, who you were, who you were facing, what you were going up against. I mean, it's, you know, it's Pokemon story. You're kids setting out on a journey. You got badges to collect. You got an evil organization to take down. You got to become the champion. That's your goal. But everything that happens in between that leads up to this impeccable story that just makes you feel like you are in the game. You are gold or whatever you chose to name yourself. Um, the story was so great. And the, the difficulty level back then was so much better. Like you did not get the EXP share until the seventh uh, gym. Whereas nowadays you open up the game and boom, you know, you immediately have it. I, yeah. Like that, it takes away a lot of the charm of those older games to me. I hated how in um, Sword and Shield you can't turn them off. Joke. If you gave me two hours to rant about what I hate about Sword and Shield, that would be one of the things. It's how easy yeah. that game has become as opposed to those days. It's just bad. I mean... I love that uh, I love Soul Silver because it made you work for everything that you were striving <laughs> to do. It made me by the end of the game feel like I mm-hmm. was a champion. Um it just for everything that you had to go through, it was amazing. And then to go through this journey with your buddy Pokemon following behind you, whoever it may be, you can switch out at any time. That was great. Brought back all the original stuff like the bug catching competition and then you had extra stuff added to it like the uh Pokeathlon, whatever it was called, like they had a little center where you go and play these mini games. Dude, that it was great. That was one of the most fun mini games they've had in a absolutely. Like it was just something different. I love. Yeah, I mean, it was something different that they did not have to add, but they did. It's not fast forward, you know, 10, 15 years later where I'm having to pay DLC to get something like that. They just put it in the game. Yeah, that's how it should be. They they added so much content on top of what gold and silver crystal were, and they put it into this incarnation of a game that has not been touched since. And ultimately, you know, not only could you collect your eight gem badges, not only could you take down Team Rocket, but you could go to another region. You could go back to Kanto, where the games started, and you could recollect those gym badges and those gym leaders were no walk in the park. Oh, Jesus you weren't Christ, facing man. level nine geo dude Brock. You were facing level forties, fifties, sixties, and you were going up against the best of the best. It made you like, Oh shit, this is what a gym leader is. You know, like you ended with Claire back in Blackthorn city, um, in Johto. And that was a hard fight in itself. She's the dragon trainer. How do you top that? Well, you top that by going to the next region over and making all the gym leaders what they... I mean, that's the reason they're gym leaders. They're so hard. They got these max-level Pokemon, and it's so much mm-hmm. fun. Yeah. And you finally put the the nail in the coffin with Team Rocket. Like, you are the one, then and there, to make them disband. Yeah, Red did that. You know, they went underground or whatever. But then and there in Johto, you're the one to put a stop to them. And it's so great. And the game doesn't end there. The game does not end when you collect that 16th gym badge and, you know, defeat Team Rocket. The game ends when you go to Mount Silver and you make that grueling dungeon climb all the way to the top and you get to the top and it's quiet and you don't know what you're doing and you take a step forward and there's nothing there and you keep walking and you keep walking and at the peak of the mountain waiting for someone to challenge him was red from the first games and it's the best battle of any Pokemon game that you could experience. It'll give you chills the music it's like you're facing your past self like the best version of yourself you are facing that 
that's when you've truly become the champion. And it's a great game, and it's my number His two. team was overpowered, too. Uh, I, so, level 80s. When you get the last Kanto badge, I think their highest Pokemon is in the 60s. Yep. And when you face Red, my man leads off with a level 88 Pikachu. Staring <laughs> you down. Like, you can have a badass Charizard sitting there, but when that Pikachu comes out, it's like, oh shit, this is not fun in games anymore. Nope. Oh, dude. What an amazing game. Yeah. Yeah, those games are very special. It's still my favorite generation of Pokemon. Yep. Um, I don't think it gets much better than that, honestly. Nope. Well, with that all said, Austin, that brings us to your number two. What are we looking at? All right. So um, I, I talked about my number two was uh, originally Pokemon and that has since changed. It is still in the Pokemon franchise, and I felt bad for putting two Pokemon games on my list, but I felt like Coliseum was, uh, I felt like that counts because it, it's not a main series game, it's a spinoff game, it's a little bit different. Um, for a long time, I, uh, Gen 2 was always my favorite generation of Pokemon, and honestly still, like my number one favorite Pokemon um, of all time is still Typhlosion, and it probably always will be. However, I started going back, and I started playing some of the other Pokemon games, and i got to say, I think my favorite generation is Generation 5 with uh, Black and White. That's awesome. That's crazy. So that is my number two pick. Uh, black and White, they... I understand... A lot of people were mad, because Black and White was intended to be a reboot sorts, a soft reboot. They introduced um, a brand new 151 slot of Pokemon. Before you completed the postgame, you could actually only use those brand new 150 Pokemon. No previous Pokemon were made available, which I think was a record because that was Black and White was the first game that didn't have a Zubat in every fucking cave or a Geodude in every fucking cave. I think Black and White was also the first Pokemon game that didn't have a Pikachu before post-game. So it, it, it set out to do something different. And I don't like a lot of designs from Black and White. You know, a lot of people trash it, saying that a lot of the designs were uninspired. Uh, I think Trubbish is literally just a pie of, like, a garbage bag with, that has garbage leaking out for arms or the ice cream cone, but people kind of tend to forget. Gen 1 was also kind of lazy and uninspired. We had a literal pile of slime called Muck. Like, <laughs> that, or Voltorb, which was literally just a Pokeball. That, that's all it was. Like, it, it wasn't that much better. Uh, look at Magnemite. It was, its evolution was just three Magnemites put together. And they didn't do that once in one generation. They did that twice. With Dotrio, which was just three Diglets <laughs> huddled together. That's... You can't shit on black and white for being unoriginal and then try still look at me in the face and tell me Gen 1 was the best thing, was the best Pokemon game. Yeah, it's nostalgic. It started the franchise. Some of the designs are actually kind of ass though, compared to what came after. In the story, this is the first time I think, or that I, I can remember anyway, that um, the really, to me, the only time that the villain team was actually not just laughably dumb. I, I mean, Team Yell and Sword and Shield, I don't even, you can't even call them a villain team because they're, they're not. Their whole thing is to stop you from winning so the 
goth chick Marty can win. I mean, that's it. That's their only fucking purpose. But the Team Plasma in black and white, their whole goal was to liberate Pokemon from humanity. Like, liberate them, calling them slaves to humanity. And, like, that was a big step for, for Pokemon as a franchise to take. We never really got something as deep as Team Plasma's ordeal. Of course, you, you know, uh, you play through it and you beat them and you face uh, N and, and gets us when, and then you find out their real plan was just to liberate all the Pokemon from humanity until Gensis was the only one that had Pokemon left in his control and could conquer the world, which came kind of came back full circle to that kind of cliche uh, uh, Pokemon villain story. But everything going on with N being an adopted child who had the ability to hear and speak to Pokemon and understand them more directly than normal humans could, which I don't think even in the sequels they ever dived in and explained that. I think they just kind of left him as a mystery, which I think is part of the reason why I love Black and White so much, because we still don't know. We don't know what ends the was, which in my opinion, I think we deserve closure because he was a very, he was a very different character, like a very different rival character than we've ever been introduced to uh, in previous Pokemon games, especially now all your rivals are like these happy go lucky people who want the best for you. Like I kind of, I kind of miss when Pokemon rivals were actually kind of dicks throughout your whole playthrough. Like Gary and Silver, not Gary, but uh, Blue and Silver were just pretty much assholes the whole time. And then after that, everyone's like, oh, we're best friends now. I just want to beat you just so I can say that I did it. Not because I have anything against you. But it, it was different. It was more mature and, and darker tone of a story. And it kind of flips, it kind of flips your strategies uh, over because you have to use these brand new Pokemon that you've never been introduced to. You don't know their movesets. You don't know what all their abilities are. You don't know how they sync up with other Pokemon on the team. And you have to, when the games first came out anyway, you had to play through that and kind of, it was almost like learning the game over from scratch. I mean, the basics were still there. Just complete the eight gym badges and face the champion, even though when you go to fight the champion, it find out it's not so easy as just fighting the champion because um, shit kind of hits the fan there at that point in the story but you you had to relearn all these new Pokemon and, and their movesets and their their uh, sync on your team or their place on your team if you will so to me that was and, and no other Pokemon game after that uh, has even come close I think with X and Y they only added like 60 new Pokemon, and I want to say the list for Sword and Shield was even shorter than that. So that's it. My favorite was Gen 2 or the Gen 4 remakes of Gen 2, but I think I'm going to have to put Black and White as my favorite of the Pokemon franchise. Yeah, I mean, you hit the nail on the head on so many of those aspects. Like, Especially in as a character, I'm glad they, they left him as a mystery because you had from the get go, you had two rivals literally start in the same bedroom as you in you, your neighborhood best friends with, uh, I think, Bianca and what was his name? Sharon, Sharon, something like that. Yeah, Sharon or Sharon. I, I never watched the anime, so I never learned how his name was actually pronounced. Same. I always called him Sharon. So anyway, you know. He in himself was a good rival because he was pressing himself to be better than you, but you could see the 
conflict he was having in himself because it was like, why can I not beat you? And he was getting down on himself. Whereas Bianca, she was doing her own thing, trying to find her own place in her in the world. And it, you got to follow their stories. But then, like you said, you get to in who is, you know, a rival in his own right. But you you don't know a lot about him. And I was actually going to bring this up when Josh was talking about his uh, Zelda games that he likes. Black and white took the weather system and did such a great job because they introduced seasons and you could not get to some places mm-hmm. unless it was snowing or something of the sort. And I thought that was yep. super cool. Unless That's you were playing cool. in a specific season. Yeah, like you could there was you can't evolve Glaceon until it's winter in your game and you can get into like or something like that. It's one of those seasons. Um, you know, Eevee to Glaceon, you can't get there unless you can get the yeah. truck. That was crazy. Like, and then the Pokemon that changes its form, Deerling based Earth, uh, Sauce Buck, rather. Um, that was strictly uh, yeah. seasonal as well. But on top of all that, and everything that you said, I think one of my favorite parts about that game is that badass cinematic where you get every gym leader yes, right there at oh. the end, and they're arm in arm with you, like they're taking on the big bads, like. You get to see Unova's, you know, best of the best. Oh, that was such a good scene. That was like, no other game has done that to where it's like, we're going to stand behind this kid, and you have all eight just standing there ready to fuck the whole day up. Like, they did such a good job with the Unova games. The last thing I'm going to say about Gen 5 is um, if you're into that kind of thing on YouTube, they have these uh, shorts called Pokemon Generations. I think there's like 20 episodes, and they're all like five minutes long. And they're nothing like the anime. They're way more mature. They're definitely for the people who grew up on Pokemon rather than the kids watching it now. But now we can move on to your number two. Well, that was... <laughs> that I was going to say that was Pokemon Black and White, full of technical difficulties. <laughs> yeah. um, my number two has not changed since okay. our test podcast. That's fair. Uh... My number two is still the masterpiece that is Bioshock Infinite. I don't know really what I can say that I didn't already say before. It just, you want to talk about some like impeccable storytelling, like on every level from from the game design to the narrative design. Like Mm -hmm. this game has it all. I... I know I, it, it may sound like hyperbole, but this is one of the few games that I would I would make the claim is close to perfect, uh, if not perfect. The gunplay is so tight and like you really develop a, a weird kind of connection with the powers that you get in the way that like you can string them together to create, a, a, for lack of a better term, combos. And using those to get out or not necessarily get out of, but like in combat situations is uh, honestly, it kind of this came after, but um, maybe a jumping off point for people is the um, Dishonored franchise. It feels a lot like that in its problem solving. Uh, like just thinking of how you're going to get out of situations using the resources at your hands. And 
I mean, the narrative is is really, really great, and it's got a, one of the greatest twists in all of gaming, I think. And there's so much level of detail put in everything. Like, the world feels lived in, and it, it is completely immersive in much the same way that we were talking about with The Last of Us. Like, it has so many little details in the world that, like... I just wanted to learn about and I wanted to be like not necessarily a part of that world, but like I wanted to engulf my myself in the lore of that world. And like it's just it's so fascinating. It's such a I don't know. It's very, very good. I I really, really love that game and I don't feel like I'm doing it justice right now. It's just. It's a masterpiece. You're, yeah. I mean, you're not kidding. As soon as when we did that test podcast, I think, I don't know if I told you or not, but right then and there, it went in my Steam wish list. And then a few weeks later, you know, went on sale, bought it immediately, jumped right back into it. And my God, I mean, from the get go, you're just the lighthouse. I mean, you're playing the game for two minutes. Yeah. You get to this lighthouse. And immediately, I don't know if you're supposed to feel intimidated or scared or what have you, but the second you are in there with these two chattering Nancys outside talking about God knows what, who dropped you off on this robot, uh, robot, (laughs) (laughs) on a rowboat, and they just leave you there talking to themselves in the distance as they row away, and you're left at this lighthouse in the middle of nowhere and the whole thing is creepy. Yeah. First off, as soon as you walk in, dark, don't like that. Then you start to walk up the staircase, and right there on the side of the wall is a bloody handprint. So immediately, that's not good. Don't like that. Uh, continue on up the floor. You make it a level or two up. And there's a man that has been tortured and killed. Blood is everywhere with the bag over his head with some ominous note right on his chest. And if you think that's the most unsettling thing in that lighthouse, you would be wrong because six feet to the right of that is a still burning cigarette, meaning whoever did that to that man cannot be far off. And it sends chills down my spine every time I walk up there. And that's within the first three minutes of the game. And it does not slow down after that because you meet Elizabeth, you develop this just unbreakable relationship with her. You watch her growth. You watch what she goes through. You nailed it on the head with the the plot twist. I think that is one of the best in any game that I've played. I'm not going to spoil it. That's one of those. It's kind of up there with The Witcher. I just don't want to talk about it because you have to see it to experience it. Uh, experience it. And then the gunplay is so much fun. The powers you have are so much fun. The enemies and the traversability of the levels are great and just the, the the world itself pops it's vibrant it's beautiful but it still can get you in the spine with the chills and some of the stuff that you have to walk through it's definitely a bioshock game and it's definitely the best bioshock game at that yeah i i i think so uh a lot of people will argue the first one but yeah, it's okay to be wrong <laughs> I've, I've actually everybody that I've talked to that is super into Bioshock. I've heard everyone say that they they uh, punny enough uh, infinitely 
Love Infinite. Oh my god! Yes, I'm never allowing you on the podcast ever again. You're <laughs> you're done. <laughs> Good number two, Josh. Good number two. Fantastic. Haven't played it, but want to. Uh, well, see. Yes. <laughs> so let's let's get to our uh, our number ones. Or do do we want to uh, do anything like honorable mentions before we do number ones? Or how long has this podcast been going? Uh, <laughs> okay, so my number one. <laughs> <laughs> we can do a couple of honorable mentions. Yeah, uh, go ahead. You do whatever you feel. Yeah, because I do have honorable mentions, but honest to God, like. Just, I mean, I'm just going to jump into it because I have such a vast spectrum that so many games could fill that void for honorable mentions. It's stupid. I sat here and made list after list, and I narrowed down to the top five. Only one game changed, I think. I think I took out, uh, nope, don't remember. Anyway, Skyrim got added to this list. But my number one, um, I actually have this little notepad in front of me, and I kind of jotted down some notes on the four of my games just to remember some key points. And for my number one, I didn't jot down anything. And my number one is Stardew Valley. It's a game that transcends games to me because mm-hmm. I've struggled with a lot in my life um, in terms of mental health. I don't know why I was dealt the hand I was, but it's hard for me to stay positive, stay focused, stay on the track that I need to go. And sometimes what I need is just to escape for a little bit. Mm-hmm. And when I heard of this game called Stardew Valley... I didn't know what to expect. Honest to God, I thought it was like a farming simulator. And, you know, like, who doesn't want to have some cows and sheep and stuff like that? So I pick it up and immediately, you know, you watch this sad little cutscene. If if for its own way, like The Last of Us and The Witcher 3, for this pixelated game to make me feel the feels I had in this little click to move on cut screen or a cutscene, man... It was unbelievable. It's like you watch your your grandfather's on his deathbed, essentially, and he's leaving you his farm. And you get the farm and you get there and it's this run down weeds everywhere. Trees are growing. I mean, you can choose what kind of landscape you have, but let's just say you go with the default one. I mean, this is not looking like a good farm. And you slowly begin to do some work on it. You know, you clear out a little path for whatever you need to do. You can plant your crops. Um, so on and so forth. But the game truly begins to shine when you make your way over to Pelican Town, the, the town that is the hub of everything. And you start to see more than just yourself. You see townspeople. And these townspeople are all unique to themselves. There are no two alike, no two look alike. They are unique individuals that, as you talk to them, they become your friends. You begin to know everything about them. You give them stuff. You learn what their likes are and what their dislikes are. You understand the relationship with other townspeople in Pelican Town. You can check the calendar and learn about their birthdays or events coming up. It's a game that is meant for you to invest yourself not only into the land that your grandfather gave you, but to not neglect the people there too, because the people are where the game truly shines. And it encourages relationships of all sorts. And one of my favorite things, it's someone you would not expect to 
to have a friendship with. It's a homeless man who does not live in the town, mind you. He lives all the way north next to this lake, next to a cave inside of a small tent away from civilization. The first thing he says to you when you speak to him is something along the lines of, please don't mess up my tent. It's like, what kind of life has he lived to have that be the first thing he says to a stranger? So I made it my goal to bring him food every day. You can bring him two gifts in a week. Every villager is the same. So I bring him two gifts in a week. And slowly you start to develop your hearts with this person. You fill up a relationship meter and he becomes friendlier. And as soon as you get to your two-star or two-heart level, you get this cutscene. And the cutscene is at night. You know, I was coming back from fishing on the lake, and then I take a stroll through Pelican Town or Pelican Town to get back to my farm. And the game kind of cuts away. And I didn't know the game had cutscenes up until this point, not really, at least. And it's Linus, the homeless man, and he's foraging through a trash can. And the the person's house that he's at, he you know he comes out. Linus runs around the corner, and this guy's like, "Oh, those darn raccoons!" You know, blah blah blah. And he sees the farmer, you there, and he says, "Can you please go scare off that raccoon?" Old man goes inside and leaves you to do the business. You go around the corner, and there's a homeless man, and he's ashamed of what he's doing. He's ashamed of having to find food for himself, and that crushed me. You can choose what you say to him. You can scold him. You can give him a neutral answer or you can encourage it. You can be like, look, man, you don't have any other options. I totally get what you're doing, which is, you know, as any person with a heart would do, that's what I did. And he really comes to respect you for that. Like he says, thank you so much. And he says, I promise I won't rummage in this man's uh, trash again. Then he goes about his own way and, or you go your own way rather. So that's where the cutscene should end, but instead, the town barman, the guy that owns the bar, he comes out because Linus goes to his trash can, and he's like, hey, you, stop right there, and Linus, just immediately ashamed, he's been caught, he's about to get in trouble, the barkeep walks up and he says, anytime you feel the need to do this, please come into my bar, you will always have food, I don't want anyone in this town to go hungry, and that's that. That is the moment that the game sealed itself as number one for me because this game that I picked up as a farming simulator drove me to invest in relationships with these pixels on the screen, and I've never done that before. I've never wanted to get to know every person in a video game, to learn their likes and dislikes, to eventually marry someone and have a kid, to have a farm full of animals, to have a pet dog to capture, you know, catch all the fish, to find all the vegetables, to forage your goods, to build up the town from, a, you know, this broken down, there's parts of the map that are broken down, you have to repair it, and there's so much to do inside of a game that from the outside looks like you do some farming. And this game changed everything for me, and that's why it's my number one. It sounds like a phenomenal game, and I really want to sit down and play it. Boy. Yeah, I I picked it up on Steam the other day because it's on the uh, the summer sale or whatever. I think I got it for, what, 15 bucks or something? I don't remember. So uh, I'm going to... I'm gonna 
test it out because I also have not played it. I've played games similar to it, like a uh, like I've played Rune Factory before, and I've played um, the Harvest Moon, um, but. Uh, I've never played this one before, and it'll be my first one in a very, very long time. So, yeah, it's definitely unique. It's different. It's more different than Animal Crossing. More different than Harvest Moon. It's just every everything that you could want out of a small game. I feel like it truly delivers on. I mean, you you want to do everything in that game. You truly can. You're limited to a day cycle. Like your time is limited. Like you have energy that you are expending. You have to plan your days ahead of time. That's what I like. It's like I can plan out my whole week. It's like, okay, today I need to invest in talking to this person. I need to give these two some gifts. I need to make sure all my veggies are picked so I can sell these, make some money. Maybe I can fish on a bank on this day, you know, because you're also making money that way. Trying to make more money so you can invest in crops or whatever to just increase your revenue. There's so much you can do. There's so much you can plan for. It's not just a direct, like... This is a farming simulator. This is a relationship simulator. It's everything. It's everything you could want. It's an RPG. You're leveling up your uh, your fishing, mining, combat, stuff like foraging, stuff like that. I mean, it's everything I could have ever wanted in a game wrapped up in a mystery package that I didn't know I needed, and it landed itself in my top spot. That's awesome. Nice. That's awesome. Very cool. Maybe if, uh, if uh, good old T-Daddy gives us another stimulus check. Like they're talking about, maybe I'll finally get around. <laughs> oh God! Oh, that is definitely a name <laughs> for him. We'll have to wait and see. We'll have to wait. I have other names. Uh, <laughs> I think we all. Oh, do. Well, I think we all have uh, other <laughs> names for him. No, I. Um, <laughs> how about we talk about your number one? Uh, what a fantastic transition. Um, <laughs> my, I, try. I try. My number one favorite game of all time is a franchise that you kind of shat on when he was talking about Skyrim. Um, and that would be Fallout New Vegas. Oh, oh dude, I straight up forgot I, for a second that that was... Because we've talked about it before <laughs> and we did the test podcast. But I was like... What what did I shit on? <laughs> yeah, it's like let's just shit on all the games that he plays right now. <laughs> Honestly, um, but no, you're right. You really can't aim without the bat system. You are entirely correct about that point, my good sir. But it something about the game captivated me at a very vulnerable point in my life. Um, I played the game back when I was oh Jesus Christ. Uh, I think I was a sophomore in high school when I played it for the first time I, re- I remember booting up I remember booting up the game for the first time I, I bought it from uh, a disgusting store that we call GameStop I remember I remember playing it and I was on the phone with the first time I ever played it I was on the phone with my uh, quote unquote high school girlfriend at the time and then I never played it again did not play it after that until I was a senior in high school. It was the week that my grandfather had passed away. He passed away Christmas morning when I was a senior in high school. And the week while we were getting ready for the funeral arrangements, you know, I was having to go to visitations every night for like three days. I had to talk to all these people coming up to me, telling me they're sorry for me and all that stuff. 
and I, I would go home and I would, I would play New Vegas and I would just get lost in it for hours because I, I had all um, to, to preface why it was such a big deal for me uh, I'm not very I don't get along with my family that well um, we're not super super close like most normal families are we have our issues but my grandfather was and, and to this day my grandfather and grandmother are some of my favorite people in the world they took care of me more so than uh, pretty much anyone else did growing up um, I lived with them for a hot period of time I moved in with them when my grandfather started going through Alzheimer's and dementia because I was helping him out so I, I was literally missing days at school because my, my grandmother could not handle him by herself when I was a senior and uh, so the time that the, the week he passed away and dealing with that I would just come home and I would boot up New Vegas and I would just get lost in it because I didn't want to think about anything else I didn't want to leave my bedroom and deal with with anything else that was going on so I, I would just immerse myself in this in this uh, wasteland this desert wasteland and it, the story I, I, re, I, I remember the story not being particularly great um, for for an RPG of its time but the the whole aspect of it being similar to Skyrim in the in the sense that you really could you really could do whatever you wanted, and that was the first RPG of its kind that I had ever actually played like that. Um, you know, you create your character at the beginning, you you choose what stats they want to specialize in more so than others, and then I remember in New Vegas there was a perk. Um, I can't remember what the perk is called. Called I think it's called like the Wild Card perk or something like that, and it did nothing except for you would experience strange things across your journey through the Wasteland. And that was literally the only description that that perk gave you. And having that perk allowed you to see stuff like uh, you would see ghosts, you would see like UFOs crash into the Wasteland. Um, you would just see outrageous, crazy shit that did not belong there. And so playing through and seeing all that stuff, it, it, it really makes it a different experience using that, that perk. And it's and then all the references that are packed into it. I know there's an Indiana Jones reference in, in New Vegas. There's a spot right where you start out where there is a uh, there's a fridge and you open the fridge and it's a skeleton with the Indiana Jones hat on. And I can't for the life of me remember which Indiana Jones movie that's from that he like hides in like a fridge or something to evade a bomb blast. I may be saying that completely wrong. It's been years since I've watched any of those movies. I do know that was a callback to those movies. And then walk a little further, and there's a UFO ship that crashed, and it's got a bunch of alien bodies with laser guns and, and fusion cells, and it was just such a different experience than anything I had gotten to play uh, up until that point in my life. So dealing with what I did, what I was dealing with, and coming home and being able to immerse myself in this world that was vastly different than what was going on around me was was really a. Um, it was more about the. It really helped me grieve, I guess. It really helped me deal with my own problems in a way. If that makes sense, I don't know that I'm explaining this in a way that makes total sense. But uh, no, yeah, I get you. That is, uh, that's why it's one of the few games in my collection that uh, I actually have sealed, and that I would. I, my my goal is to find every release and different version 
of New Vegas uh, sealed. But um, it was just such a different experience, I guess. I, I don't know how to describe the story in New Vegas because it's very difficult to. You, you start out having no idea what's happening. You start out being dragged along this mountainside at night, and then this very clean-cut dude in a checkered suit literally just shoots you in the face and leaves you to die, and you're rescued by this doctor who, you know, you can be nice and accept his, his givings and leave, or you can kill him and take all his shit. It's your choice. And then there's the, the faction system. There's a bunch of different factions you come into. I know the first town you start out in, there is a guy who is on the run from a mercenary group, and you can either choose to help him defend the town from the mercenary group, or you can kill him and take all his shit and do the mercenary group a favor. And depending on what you do, you earn loyalty points for either that town or that mercenary faction. And you come into all these, you come into such crazy situations like that throughout the entire playthrough. But that is my number one pick. That's my favorite video game of all time. I go back and replay it at least once every six months, like at minimum. That's crazy. I just, it's one of those games where I've heard about it since its inception, since it came out. Everyone always praises it. I've never truly delved into the Fallout games outside of Fallout 3 and 4, and even 3 was a short stint. Mm-hmm. Uh, 4 a little more, so I didn't even finish the game. But with all the positive things I hear about New Vegas, I've yet to play it, but you're it's kind of like the same boat with Josh earlier. Every time I hear you talk about it, I want to play it. Mm-hmm. Um, it sounds great. It's it's phenomenal, uh, dude. I don't I don't know if you own an Xbox or anything like that. But for people that do own an Xbox, it is it is on Game Pass. I think it's on sale on Steam Summer Sale right now too, if I'm not mistaken. I yeah, I think it is. I follow I follow a page on Facebook called Cheap Ass Gamers that their whole job is to let you know what's on sale where at what times. And I think I did see that it was a part of Steam's big summer sale going on right now. Yeah, and I think it's only like two. I don't know for a fact, but I think it's like two ninety. Mm-hmm. So just to, to at least have it in my inventory, I might pick it up just to play at a later date. Absolutely, it's one of those games. It sounds like it's yeah, it just it's one of those classics that you can't really go without playing because it did so much um, that the other games did not mm-hmm. do. As far as I have heard, like Fallout Three and Four did not come close to what New Vegas did. No, so not really not even me didn't even touch it. Yeah. That's what makes me want to try it. I'm, I'm a huge fan of the Fallout franchise as a whole, and I've, I've played and beaten all of them. Um, I've never played the original Fallout 1 and 2. I will one day, but I've yet to do that. But Fallout 3, Fallout 3 was good, but Fallout New Vegas was infinitely better. And then Fallout 4 was just kind of, eh, wasn't bad. I didn't hate it, but I didn't enjoy it either. I'm sure Josh hates it, because Josh loves to shit on everything that I adore, so... <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure he thinks it's a trash game. <laughs> uh, no, New Vegas is far and away the best um, Fallout game to me, or at least console. I I actually am really fond of Fallout Two, but uh, yeah, I think that it is at the very least of the console iterations of Fallout is far and away the best one. Absolutely. But Josh, this proposes the question. What is your number one game? Oh, that uh, it does bring that into question, huh? Uh, well, I'm very curious about this. 
My number one is a game that I have played an ungodly amount of times. Um, I think at this, (laughs) I think at this point I've probably played through the game like all the way to completion, probably over a hundred times. It's Metal Gear Solid. Okay. (sighs) I don't know what I can say about this game that will make anybody who's never played it want to play it. Or I I don't even really know. Like, I I genuinely feel like I'm going to have a bad time trying to explain it. All I know is that Metal Gear Solid, for me, was that game that introduced me to storytelling in a manner that was completely different from any other form of storytelling that was going on in video games at the time. Or at least not necessarily for the time, but for me at that time. So this was like the first, for lack of a better term, adult game that I ever played. I grew up with the Genesis and my second system was the PlayStation. And on those systems, I had a bunch of like cartoon games and, you know, just like Bugs Bunny games and, you know, Saturday morning cartoons and stuff like that. And uh, I actually, I remember the first game that I got with my PlayStation was Pocket Fighters, which was um, like a little uh, Street Fighter type or I it, I think it was exactly Street Fighter, but it was like with little chibi characters. And so like I I was not used to the kinds of stories that Metal Gear Solid was telling. And I just it it floored me. Uh to this day I still have an affinity for stealth games, even though I'm fucking terrible at them. And it's because of this game. It just Everything about it to me is is perfect. the The story is easily the most comprehensible of uh, Hideo Kojima's oeuvre, if you will. I uh, I don't know, man. Like all of the characters are so well realized and so memorable. Really, the only one that you could argue is not is. Um, what was his name? Uh, shit. The guy who is like a master of disguise. Oh my God. I don't remember his name, but he, he's the DARPA chief when you meet the DARPA chief. And, um, yeah, just every, every single character in that game from revolver ocelot to, you know, the cyborg ninja to even Otacon, they're just, they all have these very distinct personalities and they all have these really, really awesome, like memorable boss fights or, or like story beats. Like I remember the first time that I played through the boss fight of the, I think it was right before disc two starts. It's the second fight with sniper wolf and she goes on this entire, uh, she, she goes on this entire monologue about how she was raised to be a, um, 
like a hardened Russian soldier. And like she recounts like these horrifying uh, things that took place during her childhood. And then you you hear Otacon come over, you know, the codec and like he's listening to her, too. And like he has fallen in love with her and she's dying as he listens to her recount like how she kind of like transformed like he kind of helped transform her to being like less of a uh like a cold-hearted warrior and shit and it's so heart-wrenching and there are so many instances in that game of people like having these really deep connections and these really deep stories that don't, or at least for me at the time, didn't get the kind of exposure for me. Like mm-hmm. I, I wasn't an old enough person to really be understanding Metal Gear Solid at the time, but like I, I see it now and it's something that has influenced me greatly. I just, I don't know, man. I, I really, really feel like I'm doing a bad job of giving this game justice, but it's, it's so good. It, there are so many awesome little memorable moments, not even character moments, but like, for instance, they, in the fight with Psycho Manus, and I know this is something that, like, if you've ever played it, everyone fucking talks about this shit. But the the fact that, like, the game read your memory card to see what other Konami games you played. Oh, and yeah, then Psycho Mantis would fucking call you out about that shit is just, it's, like, so mind-blowing to me. Like, that's something that, like, you wouldn't think game developers would think about or game developers would do and then like it's on the fucking ps1 like (laughs) i i I just there's so many and and also in that same fight like he will quote quote unquote take control of your mind and the way that you like circumvent that is by plugging, taking your controller out of the PlayStation and plugging it into the other port. So he can no longer take control of you. Like that's so interactive. Yeah. It's, it's so fucking crazy that like, and it's those levels of detail and like just foresight that Kojima and his team had to make something so interactive and so compelling and I, to to me, stuff like that, the the memories I have with that game, are, I I, I really don't know that they've ever been topped. And like I have, really really great memories with a lot of really great games, but when I think about stuff that like, w- why I'm a gamer, the the things that make me want to play video games are the moments that I remember from Metal Gear Solid 1. It really was going for something more than gaming, and to me, it is something more than gaming. It's it's an experience that I rarely find in video games. Video games don't strike chords with me as strongly as Metal Gear Solid did, and and maybe that's because I'm old and cynical now and 
Probably. Yeah, right. Uh, but it is one of those games that I will genuinely never forget. And it's a game that I still continue to play because I love it so much. And that's why it's my favorite game. It's awesome. Man, I feel like that kind of summed up these 15 games very well. It's, you you know, your number one, you ended it by saying it's just a game that you will never forget playing. And that's how I feel like a lot of these past 15 games that we've named have been. It's just games that have stuck with us. Reoccurring theme between those 15 is that there's some emotional trauma involved somewhere in some point in time. So those games stand out on the list a lot. Um, and nostalgia plays a huge fact in, or a huge factor into it too. But these are just games that we will remember for however long we are alive, for however long we play games. I feel like these games are always going to be there because mm-hmm. it's paved the way to where we go from here. I agree. Yes, agreed. Wow. <laughs> that was a good 15. Well... That yeah, that was a great fifteen. Uh, and honestly, you summed it up better than I ever could. Um, so normally we would that so that uh, as a sort of general rundown. Uh, normally we would come in, we would have our little introductions and stuff. That would that would be considered our main topic of the show, and then uh, normally in the episodes that follow we'll talk about the stuff that we've been playing and maybe any sort of uh noteworthy news items and stuff like that uh but this episode is incredibly long already and we don't want to waste any more of your time <laughs> so we thought this was going to be the streamlined boy best podcast <laughs> boy were we wrong <laughs> holy shit no, it, it it got yeah. Real quick before before we, we we end the podcast, I do want to talk about um as far as honorable mentions go, you guys have no idea how hard it was for me not to put Xenoblade Chronicles oh, Lord. or Mega Man Battle Network five on my list. It was hard. This fella. Because I wanted to put Battle Network somewhere, but I <laughs> but I, I couldn't. They are they are amazing though. If you guys have never played those and you have the means to play one, you you should definitely try them. Okay, uh, I mean, I guess if we're doing this, Son of a bitch. Uh, the other five on my list, and I won't I won't talk about them in any length. Just know that they were on my short list. Uh, were Call of Duty Modern Warfare Two, um, Uncharted Three, uh, Uncharted Three Drake's Deception, which I already spoke about uh pokemon crystal red dead redemption and this is actually kind of funny <laughs> you guys will never fucking believe this uh forza horizon 3 oh okay oh, that's actually yeah. pretty cool that's the horizon series is so great yeah and i'm i like i don't like racing games at all and that game came out and dude i cannot tell you how many hours i put in that fucking game like i played it non-fucking stop just to parallel that because i have my whole list of honorable mentions too i'm not going to run down because we've kept this going long enough but my honorable mention for racing game was burnout paradise because it was so much fun with the phenomenal soundtrack 
so much stuff to do, so many roads to race down, so many collectibles to find, cars to create, you know, collect, and then the whole DLC that they added. That was such a good game. So, Burnout Paradise was my honorable mention. All right. I just had the two. I just had those two. Awesome. So I guess to to finish wrapping this up uh, and get back to what I was saying is so this doesn't follow the normal thing, but uh, we will be back in two weeks. We're going to do this by bi- weekly until uh, until further notice. Um, and occasionally we'll still have one off episodes like this uh, sprinkled here and there where we'll probably break down like a topic um, or like talk about a game, have like a spoiler cast and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, uh, really, really appreciate anyone who did listen to this. And also as like a cool little thing, uh, or at least I think it's kind of cool. If you listen to this show and you like it and you know someone else who would like it, uh, take the time to just text them uh, about us and let them know, hey, you might like this, and then get our name out there because that would be really, really cool for us. This is something we're doing for fun, but it's always fun to have other people to discuss it with and have like a community built around this stuff. So, um, yep. Feedback helps everything. And yes, yes. Please give us feedback. If you, uh, obviously, like I said, this is going to be different from our normal format, but if you've got any like constructive criticism, well, I'm way more than willing to hear it out. So, uh, just let us know. And, We'll be back in two weeks with our ep- first episode proper. So uh, I guess for Cool Cat Dad, Mr. Austin Stevens, and for the one and only Claptrap, Dylan Martin, I am your host, the Bebop Man. We will see you later.